I think when you're out on one of these expeditions, there's definitely a degree of not ego, but understanding what you're capable of, which makes you feel better. And because you feel better, you're better around other people and you give more time because you understand yourself that little bit more. Some people call him crazy and other people say he's brave. No matter how you define Ashley Dykes, there's no escaping that he is an inspiration. He's an extreme explorer and he set three first world records. Be happy, never content, and make sure you are subscribing to the channel. Before we start this week's podcast, I have to give a special mention to our sponsors. I Secure Vehicles. They are a brilliant company, a family-run business, and they specialize in vehicle safety and security throughout the UK. I know this company very well, and I also know the people behind the brand. If you've been following me on my podcast journey and on social media, you will know that I love cars and so does my network. This is why I'm very, very excited to be working with iSecure Vehicles, and this is why we have chosen them to be our sponsors for the Stephen Sully Study Podcast. Their team are professionals, experts, and they're efficient. Once their product is installed on your car, your vehicles, you will have the peace of mind that your asset is protected. Trust me, do not wait until it's too late. Get protection now. For more information about their products, including dash cameras, undetected immobilizers, and also car tracking systems, head over to isecure-vehicles.co.uk. And remember to mention the Stephen Sully Study podcast sent you. Welcome back to the podcast, Stephen Sully Study. Um, I was just saying to my next guest, Ash, we do live in a bit of a wonderful time because I noticed this man some time ago. I've listened to a few of the podcast interviews. I'm very intrigued by your story. Someone that I definitely wanted to get on. And many years ago, we wouldn't have the benefit of just picking up a device, sending a message, voice note, and getting a reaction back. And that's exactly what I did with Ash. We didn't know each other up until just now. Yep. I messaged you only a few days ago, and here we are in Mayfair in our gallery about to do a wicked episode. So welcome aboard, Miss, Mr. Ash Dykes. Good to all be right. here. Thanks for having me. So um, how do I introduce you? An extreme F. Fleet explorer, nutter, crazy man. What? What? How would yeah, you define yourself? All Ash? of the above. All of the above. It's a funny one because yeah, um, yeah, adventurer, extreme athlete, explorer, three-time world first record holder, author, speaker. It then gets silly. So I just say um, explorer or adventurer or extreme athlete, and that's how. And then like I can't stop that. Or author or speaker. <laughs> yeah, one of them. Either okay. or. <laughs> right. I'm. I'm just gonna. Um, quote something here yeah you are named the seventh coolest person individual in wales how it's true is that it's not quite number one though i'm a little bit disappointed with that <laughs> i'm joking i think it was uh i think it was tom jones or someone legendary he was number one but that's that's cool right that is uh yeah that was back in 2015 it was in the middle of my madagascar trek it was actually i think it was my mum or my friend who was like, oh, look, tagged me in their Facebook post. And I was like, no way, that's cool. I don't know, you know, how accurate it is or how they judge it, but it was nice and provided me a bit of motivation in Madagascar. <laughs> that's good, that's good. So jumping into it then, okay. So um, 
three world titles, but in actual fact, it's slightly it's a slightly different sort of uh, term. It's three world first yes. records. That's Cross- the important one that a lot of people get wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Because I noticed that. When I first read it, I, I said it just naturally as world world records. It, it's not. It is, but it's it's more important than that. It's the world's first records. Yes. Um, Mongolia and there's, there's obviously a few, few other things that you've done. But in yep. your own words, what are your world records that you've achieved? Uh, so what are the world, what, what are these world first kind of trips that you've done? First one was Mongolia, first person ever recorded to walk solo and unsupported across its length. Second one was Madagascar, a 155-day, 1,600-mile journey, walking from south to north, summiting the eight highest mountains, sort of machete in hand, hunting, gathering, becoming the first to do so. And the last one, the most recent one, is the Yangtze River, the single largest river to run through a country. Um, which is the Yangtze River, 4,000 miles, and that took 352 days to complete. That's crazy. That's pretty wild. Lucky to be alive. (laughs) I'm definitely going to drill down into this further. Yes. Um, Off air, one of my, I guess, inspirations for the podcast has to be Joe Rogan because he's been doing it for such a long time. He's turned it into a real business and he has a very cool, diverse guests on from people talking about aliens, yeah. from people like yourself who are successful athletes and people who do extreme things. Yeah. Then you've got Elon Musk. I mean, the, the list is endless. Mm. And I'm always intrigued when I speak to a guest that had been on Joe Rogan, how did you get on there? And also what was your life like after that episode came out? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. I think, and it, it's not a story many people will know or think I did, but after the Yangtze River, that was my third world first record. You know, I was on the couch on the one show. It was Good Morning Britain. It was BBC World News. We reached over 1.1 billion people worldwide via news and press because it was a first. And you would think that either Joe reached out to me or, you know, I had this big supportive PR team who reached out to his team, but it wasn't. It was me. One day, a few months after I had completed that Yangtze journey, I just sat down. I found an email to his team, to one of his agents um, via a website. And I then drafted my very own email talking, you know, about who I am, what I've achieved, you know, including the one show, BBC World News, all of that sort of stuff. And then I gathered a load of different emails from, you know, my sister, my brother, my brother-in-law, my mum, my dad, friends. And I sent the same email, just making small adaptations to the beginning and end of that email 14, 15, 16 times. The idea being, I want to flood this email so that they keep seeing my name and be like, the fuck's this guy? And open one of them because he must, he gets thousands every day, right? And so there has to be one that his agent um, reads because he keeps seeing my name and it's like, right, okay, this is impressive. And that's how it happened. He came back to me saying, I've run this by Joe. Joe is very impressed and really wants to talk to you. Are you free on January the 12th, which was two weeks away? I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> I flew right out there. So you flew over to uh, Las Vegas? That was, was Los Angeles. Los Angeles. Yeah. Okay. And sat, sat down, it was like two, two, two hours, 40 minutes or something. I listened yep. to it recently. Nice. What was he like? To me. He was just as cool off podcast as you see him on the podcast. Really cool, down to earth guy. We were speaking for a while before the show, after the show, and before my show was uh, Joey Diaz. 
Do you know Joey Diaz? One of his one of his best friends, mm. big gangster guy. He is. He came out and he was a good laugh as well. And even the security that he had there, you know, these big guys, but they were you know big teddy bears in a way. You know, really sort of gentlemen like. And they showed me around the the cave, the man cave. And it was just a really cool experience, you know, absolutely buzzing afterwards. I bet. And on the final note of that, um, he must have really resonated with your story because knowing the small amount of information I know about him, I've mm. never met him, but he obviously used to compete as a, as a fighter. He trains like a beast anyway still now. Yeah. He's yeah. into his wellness, the infrared saunas, the ice baths. He obviously goes out hunting. So... These are all the kind of elements that you, you tick as well, Ash. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think we could definitely relate on many aspects, especially especially the fitness and the nutrition and the martial arts background. Um, you know, the, the the health and well-being, fitness, nutrition, diet is a big one with me. And the martial arts, I was a, a martial artist doing Muay Thai, training and competing against the locals in Thailand. And so, yeah, already I knew that there were going to be, and we did even on the podcast, we sort of went way off to topic and we were talking about the, the, the Yeti and we were talking about the biggest apes found in the Congo river and, sort of you know, we, we, and the biggest snakes, we, I knew that eventually our conversation would lead that way. Cause we both had this fascination with, you know, what the fuck is out there in the true depths of the wilderness, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, I loved it. And and your your own profile, let's say quote unquote your own fame off the back end of that, you must have seen saw a big change. Yeah, big change after that. Um, there was huge growth to my social media following. There was more awareness to the achievements, and people were then keen to see what's what's next. I was then contacted by WME, one of the biggest agents in the world, who manages The Rock. You know, Dwayne Johnson, Ronda Rousey, Kevin Costner. Um, LeBron James, he managed Kobe Bryant at the time and he wanted to manage me. So he flew me back out to LA um, and we were then pitching to the president of Nat Geo, vice president of Discovery, you know, coming up with great concepts, great next sort of adventure ideas that I really wanted to pursue next. And so it was all, um, it was all a buzz, you know, this led to more presentations. So I had more speaking engagements, more brand collaborations as well. So it was, uh, it was huge and I guess it just, it goes to show when I first started this adventure um, world in a way, it was for the pure love and passion of it. I wasn't on social media. I, you know, I didn't have an iPhone. There was nothing like that. I took a photo, took a, a camera so I could gather some photos, but um, I, I was just doing it because I loved it. But then once I realized, hang on, this is a, a niche and, you know, potentially a career opener if I'm able to turn these adventures, if I'm able to do something so extreme that no one has ever done before, there's going to be a way to monetize it. So it was almost not just that point, it was probably after Mongolia that I realized, hold on, I need to stop doing just the adventures for the pure love and passion. If I can turn it from a hobby to a job, to a career and able to, to monetize off the back of these achievements, then that's what I need to do. So it went from 100% sort of adventure to 50-50. 50 adventure, 50% business. Uh, and I guess going on to that, that Joe Rogan podcast with all of the opportunities that came after, it just goes to show that if you can take what you're working towards to market, you just never know who's going to pick it up and what that pickup will potentially lead to. I totally, totally resonate with that and, and agree. So pinning it back, okay, before the world first records and yeah. all of these accolades and your successes and the challenges you've gone through, yeah. 
pin it all the way back, I've heard some of your conversations with different podcast interviews and also some 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 articles. And your message is fairly consistent and clear, which is you regard yourself as a normal person. And if you can do it, other people can do it. Not necessarily meaning people going on long treks and traveling across countries, but in its purest form, it's about if there is a goal and you've got a mission and you're really driven as a normal individual, if Ash can do it, then so can you. How important is that message to your fans and your followers? Oh man, it's crucial. It's vital because there were so many times along my journey that I could have, or looking back, should have quit. You know, there were many times that the odds were stacked against me and I never played the victim. Um, But I was raised in a a small town that no one knows about in Wales. You know, I wasn't raised in Cardiff, in Manchester, in in London, where there's more contacts, there's more opportunities. It was in a small town called Olcowin where most people retire. It's a sleepy little village. No one really makes it out of there. Um, No financial background, no military background, no further education. I didn't go to university. I didn't, you know, obtain a degree. I literally just worked in a fish and chip shop on three pound 10 an hour as a lifeguard and as a waiter, cycling every day to and from work along the windy coast, winter, summer, it, it didn't matter to me. And I was raising the funds to head off, you know, to travel because I knew that there were more opportunities out there, much more opportunities that are suggested back here in Old Colwyn, more than what the careers advisor is, is opening up to you. Um, and I just need, I knew that I needed to find those opportunities. And whilst I was searching for those opportunities, I knew that I'd need to face different elements of adversity, you know, become, turn myself from a boy to a man through facing difficult challenges, put myself in awkward, embarrassing or dangerous scenarios, see how I react, what kind of person I am. And so all of this intertwined just made sense for me to go off and go traveling. Now, I didn't know that an adventure career would have, you know, came off the back of it. But in 2013, when, well, 2012, really, when I was 22, where there was the potential, it was at that point I really then grinded with, I had nothing, but I used whatever I could to succeed. You know, Mongolia expedition, for example, there was no valid insurance. There was no evacuation plan, couldn't afford it. There was no carbon fiber trailer that I could pull across the country. It was built in a family friend's back garden for free, which meant that the trailer was 40 kilograms on an empty load, you know, 120 on a full load. And I faced along the way, it's been over 2000 rejections now, rejections from TV, from magazines, from papers, from radios, from brands, from talks, from speaking engagements. You know, I'm my name's not big enough. My social media is not big enough. No one can relate to the adventures. You're too young, you know, to achieve and success at too much of an early age. Um, and, I, you know, there were many times where I should have probably just fucking packed it in. I thought, look, this isn't for me. Go back, get a normal job, pick up the job again as a lifeguard or scuba instructor or whatnot and just and just stop. But, but I didn't. And when I look back at that now, I think that's a clear message to everyone that whatever vision you have, you know, whatever goal you're trying to achieve, whatever you're really passionate about, you know, internally passionate about, not what you want to achieve because it might make you your grandmom happy or your parents happy. You know, what what is it that you want? And I think regardless to everyone else saying no and saying it's impossible, there's just always a way. It just comes down to whether you believe you can do it or not. 
And there's always ways to get around it and make it happen. Absolutely. 23 years of age, you've done a solo, unsupported, um, you crossed uh, Mongolia. Yes. What, what does that mean to someone who's listening to this for the first time in your story? Unsupported solo cross uh, across Mongolia. What does that mean? Yeah. So this is... So many people have hiked across Mongolia for thousands of years. You know, you've got nomads, you've got people living here for millions of years. You know, people have crossed it. Um, but there's no evidence to suggest that anyone anyone has c- crossed the country solo and unsupported. And when I say solo, alone. You know, there's no team, there's no van following it. I know that there's a few journeys out there who claim to be solo and unsupported because their van is like longer, than, it's further than five miles away. But every evening it will drop by, they'll have their wonderful little massage and then they'll crack on the next morning. There was none of that. And it was completely unsupported whereby I didn't even have support from outside of Mongolia where people would drop depots along the way, hence the trailer. So I needed to carry a trailer, um, well, pull a trailer behind me weighing 18 stone, which is the same weight probably as Tyson Fury, for example, three weeks over the Altai Mountains, five weeks across the Gobi Desert, and a further three weeks up through the Mongolian steppe. Um, And that had everything in the trailer that I needed to survive this journey because it's not possible to do that journey with a rucksack because in the Gobi Desert, you need to be carrying at least 20 kilograms, uh, 20 liters of water, which is 20 kilograms. And so it's it's funny because if you look back and if you think, well, why hasn't anyone done it solo and unsupported before? The main reason being is one, the locals think it's it's stupid. You know, you take a yak, you take a camel, you take a horse, and you take family members, you travel as nomads, as a community. And two, going back even 50 to 100 years ago, there wasn't that kind of uh, infrastructure to be able to build a trailer with rubber puncture-proof wheels in order to pull across a country of that magnitude. And you would need the trailer because sometimes it's two weeks between each water source, hence why you need to really top up on your water sources, uh, on your water container. And so the element there that's most impressive with with this, hence why I couldn't take anyone with me, the record wasn't first person to cross Mongolia. The record was first person to cross Mongolia solo and unsupported. Does does that mean you you had not one single person with you? No, no, no one with with me for the entire way. Apart from the locals that you meet along the way, who just sort of, you know, you can stay with them or they wave, you know, hi, bye. And they chase you down sometimes on... A horseback to give you a cup of tea, you know, very hospitable, very friendly. But other than that, yeah, there's no uh, no support whatsoever. And is this why you're known as the lonely snow leopard? <laughs> yes, it is. It came from that journey. Yeah, and there's a pretty cool story around that. Cool, but also funny is I remember I had Signal uh, and I contacted my main logistics manager in the capital city called Ulaanbaatar. Um, and I was just like, you know, how's it going? And I, I didn't have no funds. This whole world first was no more than five grand to do, including flights out there. It was a shoestring budget. And so I didn't afford no um, PR company either. There was no marketing. There was I was just doing it. And <clears throat> he said, you're actually making quite a name for yourself here in the capital. People know you. You know, if there's articles, you're on the news, on TV. I was like, well, okay, that's interesting because I was only about three weeks in at this point. And he says, yeah, they are referring to you as the lonely snow leopard. And I was like, fuck, okay, that's a pretty cool name. 
And I was like, why the lonely snow leopard? And he simply replied, well, because you haven't yet been eaten by the wolves. And the snow leopard is the only other predator that the wolves don't attack. And I was like, well, it freaked me out a little bit because I'm still in the Altai mountain. I could still be attacked by the wolves. I was looking to get out of the Altai and into the Gobi. But it was um, <clears throat> also interesting that, yeah, they, they are right. The wolves don't take risks on snow leopards because that will get fucked up by the snow leopard, you know? And I was just like, ooh, interesting. That's, that's a pretty cool name to, to, to take. <laughs> so on that note, um, the animals that the predators, apex predators that you, you could have come across, like the bears and the wolves and the leopards, I think in another article I read as well, um, a Red Bull one, you speak about the Asian hornets and obviously some of the some of the some of the the risks that there. Mm. Were you ever actually officially attacked by any of these animals, and how close how close did you come to like having having some contact by them? There were three occasions, um, one being the the bears in in China now on the Yangtze River. The bears in the west of China on the Tibetan Plateau. I was delayed a good two and a half months, so I started that expedition pretty late, and that took me into bear season, effectively, whereby the mountains are getting too cold for the bears. So the bears come down from the mountains. They start actively searching for food. They start their hunt before they go into torpor, which is kind of their version of hibernation. And I was trekking in the West at that time. And I saw a bear in the distance, but at this point there were three of us plus a horse. And so the bear kind of drifted off. And then one morning I remember waking up with, um, Kyle, a friend of mine who joined me, videographer, and we came across bare, fresh, bare footprints on the same trail that morning. They looked only a couple of hours fresh, um, which was pretty worrying. I think the bears of all of the journeys were the scariest because I sort of started the Yangtze with a healthy frame of mind, the Western frame of mind of what experts here tell you, which is you you know, leave the bears alone and the bears will leave you alone. Well, the locals were fucking saying otherwise. They were there saying they do not care whether you leave them alone or not. If they're hungry before they go into hibernation, they're not bothered about attacking a person or a person with a rucksack that has food in it. And they were then backing it up with evidence photos and videos that they were sending to me, which I, I deleted. Some of them I didn't, and some of them I posted on, and shared on social media, but some were too horrific. I didn't want that bad energy in my phone. I was shit scared at that time. So I'm always intrigued to see and hear these these sort of videos by, you know, um, where it's bear attacks, crocodile attacks, yeah. shark attacks, tiger attacks, you know, and some of them I've seen have been horrific. You know, yeah. people have like, half their body just disappeared within one 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 swipe yeah what the bear attacks that you saw because i don't normally associate a bear grizzly bear brown bear any kind of bear really attacking an individual to to eat them it's probably territorial when it's also maybe as you mentioned about the food that they might have on them yeah but do bears really go and attack people to eat them and the videos that you've seen yeah just give me a little insight to what you've witnessed. Yeah, sure. So one of the one of the clips was CCTV, uh, which is a news channel in China, um, which sort of got linked to social media and then shared. And that was linked then back to me. And that came as a warning to me. They said, you need to hurry up. You shouldn't be here in the mountains. One, it's closing into minus 40 degrees Celsius. And I'm up still at over 5,100 meters, which is similar altitude to Mount Everest base camp. 
Um, and two, it's now hunting season. They are actively on the on the hunt looking for food. And and at first I was just like, yeah, no, it's they're gonna leave as long as I make my presence aware to them, because the biggest attacks happen when the Tibetans or you know the, the Chinese in the in the far west approach a bear by surprise. And as you said, they become territorial. There's that shock of capture. They get scared and they attack. Mm. But the photos and videos would come in my way were CCTV, China News Channel, sharing attacks in the west of China by bears. And one of the videos that came through was a bear looking out of a wooden hut in the window with blood over it. And it just killed a family of three or four, I think it was. The kids, the mum, and the father. I don't know like who it ate or even if it ate them or if it just attacked them, killed them and then rummaged through the through the food that was probably there in that year. Another one was a guy on a motorbike who was just cruising down this country lane and a bear came out and just attacked him. And it was just, I think it knocked him out with one blow right there and then. So he wasn't moving on the floor and this bear was just swiping his face and the, and the, the face after this was the picture that I deleted because I didn't want that negative energy following me, you know, on my phone. His face was just completely slack. And this was a grown man. He was a big fella. And he was absolutely mauled by this bear. And then when I- Did he die? Dead, yeah, he died. The picture was of his dead body and his face just mauled. And then when I rocked up, it was me and Kyle again with the same guy. Uh, We rocked up into a small yurt and the guy was really hospitable. He invited me inside. It wasn't a yurt. It was almost like a concrete hut. And the next day he gave me a knife and he said, you do know that there's wolves, there's bears, there's snow leopards. You shouldn't be walking here in a car. You're all right. Or on a bike, you're all right, but you shouldn't be walking. And, you know, I thanked him, but I was like, but a knife isn't really going to do much. And then I said, have you had any experience with, with bears in the past? And he was like, only two weeks ago, he had a bear walk into his courtyard. Bearing in mind, to paint a picture, he was just surrounded by mountains, covered in trees, single little hut, no neighbors. He works there because that's where the yak are. He does the dairy, the milk, the cheese, butter, all of that. And a bear walked past his Tibetan mastiff. These are like big fucking dogs who staked into the ground, who were supposed to scare off wolves, bears, and snow leopards, especially to protect the livestock. But this bear walked right past that um, Tibetan Mastiff and was scratching at the guy's steel door whilst he was hiding inside his cupboard in his little kitchen area. And I was like, and this was two weeks ago. It was actually that morning that when he gifted me with the knife and I said bye to him, we saw fresh bear footprints that morning. Me and Kyle, we filmed it. We were like, fuck that. So these were the sort of stories that were, um, that sort of changed my mindset and thought, you know, if the bears want you, they'll do anything they can to, to get you. And the wolves, I heard from other conversations, I think Joe Rogan, actually, you were, you were followed by a pack of wolves for, for a few days. Yeah. Any encounters? Did you see wolves? Did you have a near experience with them? Yeah. Wolves I saw in the distance again, but how this one happened, it was, we were heading off this track and into sort of this mountainous valley. We're still in the Tibetan autonomous region high up on the plateau. And we came across these locals. This this footage is actually on National Geographic as well. Uh, we came across these locals and they were clearly warning us of something, but we didn't really know what, you know, I'd faced that a lot where locals seem really sort of distressed that I'm here walking alone. Um, and I would just crack on through it. But we filmed that whole scenario and 
we ended up saying, you know, Zaitien, bye, you know, thank you. And we carried on walking. And for the next two days, we were followed by a pack of wolves. When I say followed, they remained in close proximity for over two days. Usually they cover further distance than people do. And we just hid their howl and we estimated there must be about five, maybe six. Um, and they were pretty close on our tail for a good while. It was awe-inspiring and, you know, beautiful to hear that natural sort of wild wolf howls in the in the wilderness, you know, but also pretty creepy, especially at night. But I wasn't really scared because the it's it's a hell of a risk for wolves to attack people. They don't really attack humans, you know, especially there's two of us now and we've got a rucksack on each. We look bigger than what we are, you know, and I think maybe they were watching to see any signs of weakness is what an expert told me. He thinks that they were maybe looking to see if I was limping um, to check on our speed, maybe to see what food we had. Uh, and eventually they they did just disappear. But that footage six months later was being edited by my production team in Beijing. Um, and they contacted me. Uh, I was still doing the Yangtze River at this point. I was still able to, a year to, to, to hike it. And they said, uh, they were laughing saying, you have no idea what this guy was saying because you know, he was speaking Tibetan. But one of the girls spoke Tibetan in the office. And they said that they were warning you not to go down that valley because only yesterday a local was attacked and killed by a pack of wolves. And that's what, the, you know, my uh, the hair stood up on my spine. I was like, oh my God. So, uh, so do these wolves attack and then kill to eat? Like I'm, I'll take it or is it just to take someone out? I don't know, you know. I think it would be to eat, to be honest. I think you do you do walk past um, carcasses when you're out there, cattle, yak, um, goat, sheep, and you can see whether they've been attacked by wolves or not. And it is usually that most of their their remains have been eaten. And and have you actually seen any videos like the bear ones that people have been attacked and killed? No, I have on YouTube, like in Alaska, in Canada, and I've heard stories of even school kids being snatched up by wolves on their walk home from school. Jesus. But in the west of China, um, the locals didn't really seem as threatened as by the wolves. They were all right. And so that kept me calm. I wasn't as worried at all for the... for the. I was in Mongolia because Mongolian wolves, they're grey wolves, they're much bigger. But the wolves in... In China, they're not the big grey wolves. They're slightly smaller, slightly less of a threat, but they still, you know, they still killed someone. But I think it was um, a lady, an older lady that they they may have taken out uh, and not, you know, uh, not a, a bigger guy. So if you're not facing the threat of just the sheer length of what you're crossing, obviously that comes with its own challenges, then you've got the animal aspect then you've got the sheer survival of food and water, shelter, etc. Yeah. But then on top of that, you will have the extreme conditions of, you know, the, the cold or even the heat. And then finally, you're going to come across some diseases and illnesses, <laughs> which you've got to kind of either avoid or, yeah. or suddenly get over very quickly. And what I'm referring to is in 2015, you completed the 1,600 mile trek across Madagascar. But during this time, you got the deadliest strain of malaria. Um, talk to me about getting the deadliest strain of malaria. Did you feel it? Was you uber ill? And how close mm. were you to death? Yeah, that was, a, that was a scary one, man. That was an internal one where I was thinking, fuck, 
because I, I wasn't educated really on malaria. I didn't really know much about it. I knew that it was a threat, hence why I was, I was actually on anti-malarial pills as well. So this was a, a five-month journey, and I caught malaria one month into the five-month journey. And I remember it was similar signs and symptoms to when I had severe heat stroke in the Gobi Desert. I almost died out in the Gobi Desert, and I remember the feelings very clear. And now in Madagascar, suffering with something that felt very similar, I started to drink more water, take in more salts and sugars, thinking, what the hell could this be? But I eventually got to a point where I was in a bad state, a real bad state, and I had to walk for days in order to reach the next, reach the next community. And this community had overland transport to take me to the city, but I didn't go straight away. I remained in that community just to feel it out, you know, thinking I might be all right. But there was one morning I just woke up and I felt like death. And I had sort of almost two internal voices. Right now I was delirious, I was slightly hallucinating. Um, and I, I remember just being on my bed for, you know, in the morning, it took like 45 minutes just to sit up and grab my drink and, you know, have a water. I went from being strong and, and capable to, to not even able to, to pick up a glass of water, you know? Um, and I remember the two voices, one was saying, just go to sleep, it'll be a painless death. And there was another one, a quieter one, but it was screaming and shouting saying, you need to get up now and act now. You need to get yourself to the nearest city where you can seek medical attention. Uh, and I did, you know, I, I, I got up slowly. I approached my guide. I said, we need to get an overland vehicle now to the city and we need to go like now. And then he like, he panicked. He saw the state of me. Um, and I was then rushed to Fianarasu, one of the cities in Madagascar. And they took me straight to a hotel, not a hospital because my guide thinks I was suffering with a disease and he thought it could have been malaria. Um, but I was in disagreeing. So I said, no, I'm on the anti-malaria. I know they only cover, cover you about 80%, but I've been taking my anti-malarial pills. And then anyway, we arrived at that hotel. He sort of gave me a lift up to um, my room. I collapsed on the bed. He sort of threw me on the bed. And then before I knew it, there were two or three heads above me, sort of just spinning. It was all very blurry. You know, they sat me up. Uh, they took my blood and I just remember the doctor, the female doctor coming back a few minutes later saying, you've got falsiparum. And I was like, what's falsiparum? She was like, it's the deadliest form of malaria. And I just remember thinking, oh, fuck. You know, does that mean I've got it in my system for life? Is that it now? All future expeditions, my, my career jeopardized? Does that mean I have to stop this world first? You know, what does it mean? I had all of these questions and then, you know, I was taking pills. I was then slowly, you know, regaining consciousness, if you like, enough to have conversations with her. She was mainly speaking Malagasy in French, but there was a telephone in the hotel room that I used to call the insurance company and have her, have them translate what she was saying. And, the, you know, the three questions were, you know, am I going to die? Is it in my system forever? And, you know, do I need to be evacuated or can I stay? Will I recover here and crack on? And what I learned is there's four strains of malaria. The three lower strains, they're not as deadly, but they can remain dormant in your system forever. Um, but the deadliest called falsiparum, it usually kills you within 24 hours. But if you catch it in that time, you can eradicate it completely out of your system. No trace of it. So how long did you have it for then? I had it for, I would say, I don't know how long I was trekking with it, 
probably four or five days I was trekking with falsipara. Jesus. So you've actually like beat the odds, like, you know, you know, by three, three or four times. And this is how I think it happened. I rocked up to a small community and I was fine, completely like aware, had nothing at this stage, rocked up to a small community. That community was suffering with the bubonic plague, such an ancient disease. They still do suffer with it in communities in Madagascar. Whereas for us, it's just antibiotics. It's ancient now, isn't it? It's in the past. And so they said, stay in your tent, we'll make your food and we'll bring the food to you. And I was like, right, okay. Because there were dogs around and rats and they had the fleas, you know, pass on the plague. And so <clears throat> stayed in our tent, they bought, uh, each of us rice and eel and this eel smelled pretty off but we were hiking for like 16 hours we were hungry and so we ate whatever they gave us and the next few days I was suffering with severe diarrhea um, and vomiting this eel back up so those anti-malaria pills that normally help protect you by 80% against malaria probably now was more like 40% because they were going in one way out the other um, and that's how I think I survived five days if it wasn't for the anti-malaria pills a day and i would have died out there in the in the wilderness i believe Jesus. um so it was a strain that held me enough and i remember the doctor saying if you rocked up to this hotel a few hours later you would have potentially slipped into a coma so it was all you know it was quite a bit of luck uh, and but once you said that you can eradicate it you'll be fit in the next week i did lose like 10 kilograms and i'm not a big guy as it is you know i lost quite a bit of bit of weight and I still had four months of the hardest section of Madagascar to overcome, but I recovered. And I remember getting bored in that hotel. I was doing push-ups, sit-ups. I was then able to venture down and do laps, uh, do lengths in the swimming pool, trying to eat, trying to get that weight back on. And I remember being quite frustrated at this point. I said, look, I will, I will finish off my course of medication to fight malaria, but can I go now? Can I crack on? And I did, I cracked on and I, you know, I had about two, three days still taking my anti-malarial um, to fight off the last remaining malaria that was still in my system whilst climbing the second highest mountain on, on the island. Pretty reckless looking back, but it's hilarious to think about it. But, and then again, fully out of my system, I regained my strength and uh, I was able to push on. And um, I don't know much about it, but is it purely and simply from the mosquitoes? That's why you get it? Yeah, yeah, it's from the mosquitoes. And there were a lot of mosquitoes. And was you being bit all the time? Was you itching all the time? Yeah, I did well to get the deton, you know, the uh, mozzie repellent, but it's it's so hard. So I, I was on the anti-malaria pills the whole time with the DEET. And everyone there, you know, my guides had faced malaria. My logistics manager, who was French, but lived in Madagascar for over 35 years, he's got the, the lowest strain of malaria. So every few years it pokes its ugly head and he has to face it again. Whereas with me, it's one of those positive, negative. The, pos the negative is, yes, it was the deadliest that could almost kill you. The positive is, fuck, it's gone. You can clear it out of your system. So if I had to pick any of the strains, it would always be the, ah, you know, because I'm the fortunate one to, to be able to, to pay. But after that, I became ambassador for Malaria, for malaria No More UK. I was mm. able to pitch this story. I was able to share my story, my experience of what I faced to help raise an increase of 20% into the global fund, which put it to 1.2 billion pounds, which in the long run as a joint effort, not just myself as a joint effort, it goes to save over 8 million lives and cases from malaria in the next five years. Amazing. And so I really wanted to give back because I, again, you know, I was, I was the lucky sod who had the money 
when is the Malagasy out there is so impoverished, the medication's the same price as a cup of coffee, yeah. but they don't have that money. And so they lose their life because they don't have money, like two, three pounds to save their own life. So it really changed my perspective. And I really wanted to do everything I could to help people that face it every single day and aren't the lucky ones that get to fly out, do their medication and bounce, crack on with an adventure, mm. you know? It was, um, yeah, brutal to see how many lives were destroyed. The question that you must get asked quite a lot, whether it's just normal people asking you, friend, family, or people like me doing podcasts, is um, out of all the treks you've ever done, which one would you say has been the most challenging, the hardest, and the one that really has left a bit of a, a mental scar? Um, which of those? That's a good one. I will break it down and say, I think Mongolia was the toughest mentally. I think Madagascar was the toughest physically. And the Yangtze was a logistical nightmare. Two years to plan, a whole year to execute, being pulled in by authorities. So that was a, that was a test of both mental and physical durability. If you like, how long can you, how many setbacks can you face yet still pull out that courage to to continue. And when I say that, what I mean is I lost four team members. They didn't die, they, they were evacuated safely to altitude sickness, fear of wildlife. The first attempt was a failed attempt to find the source of the Yangtze River. We had been pulled in a number of times already by the authorities. We were threatened um, of being deported. We were, deep into the winter season or getting deep into the winter season. So we're now facing minus 20. And there was a time where the authorities pulled us in, dropped us 20 miles back on ourselves. So we had to do a whole day again at that same exact route. But they split me and my guide and my horse up and he was out there in the wild trying to search for us. And we were on day five. Day five of a 352 day adventure all of that shit had happened and we were only not even a week into this year-long journey. And I remember the first ever time I was on my satellite phone to my dad and it was the first ever time on any adventure ever that I have said, what the fuck am I doing? Why am I doing this again? Yeah, and I think that it wasn't breaking point for me, but it was one of those where I was overwhelmed at how much shit had happened, yet it wasn't even a week. I still had a whole year of this. You know, that's brutal. whereas Mongolia was a different fear because there was a Navy soldier, a desert explorer, looks like Jason Statham, hard as fucking nails, who had attempted this same solo and unsupported journey across the country of Mongolia three times, failed on all three occasions. And he dropped me a note and said, incredible is the ability to continue no matter what. And for the first time I was going out there alone. I wasn't doing adventures like I had done previous adventures with my friend beforehand, you know, learning how to survive in the jungle with the Burmese hill tribe, cycling the length of Cambodia, Vietnam on $10 bikes, trekking the Himalayas illegally, you know, on the border of Pakistan and India. I'd already, I'd always been with a friend. Now I was about to attempt someone that someone so much more experienced had failed at three times. And I started to feel a little bit ignorant and naive, like thinking, the fuck am I doing? Solo, unsupported. 18 stone trailer, never been to the country before, 
and I arrive and I'm like, I'm here to be the first man to walk your country. There was just something not sitting right in my gut and I was very scared. I was very fearful and I held a lot of doubt because every single person that I spoke to showed no support in terms of you can do this apart from close friends and family, but they really didn't know what I was going to face, you know, but people who were experienced and even locals were saying it's, it's, it's physically not possible. It's suicide almost. Yeah. Is what people were saying. Um, and that got to me because I had announced it, you know, I'm a man of my word. I was doing a lot of training. I flew back from Thailand with 200 pounds to my name. I moved back in with my parents, rent-free, couldn't, couldn't afford shit, couldn't afford no gym membership. I asked my uncle, cause he does courier. He did like, is a lorry driver, goes all over the UK. And I said, look, if you're ever dropping off at farms and you, you see a tractor tire, can you ask the local farmer if I can have it? And he did, and he bought me over a tractor tire and a sledgehammer. So all of the training for that world first was done in my back garden. And that world first cost me no more than 5K. Um, no insurance, no true evacuation plan. I had nightmares before I set off for the journey. So mentally, I think Mongolia, because it was the first one, but Madagascar, of the 155 days, I do not think there was one day that was just a simple day trek. You know, it was gunpoint. It was hiding from the bandits. It was malaria. It was pulling leeches off, flicking them out the tent six to seven every night. It was spider bites that were getting infected. It was hacking through the jungle, covering maybe one mile in 16 hours. It was summiting the eight highest mountains along the way. It was hunting and gathering just there was there was a lot of challenges with with Madagascar. so physically maybe madagascar but then the yangtze for that that sheer durability of keep, keeping it on when everything's telling you to stop and you've mentioned it just slightly there but you've been held up by gunpoint how many times did that happen and why did i hold you up with a gun <laughs> This was, so down south of Madagascar, it's, it's very reckless to go there. I'm ambassador for Madagascar and, you know, I do promote it. It's a beautiful island. It's one of the most unique countries on the planet. But if you're going to go there, just maybe try to avoid the south of Madagascar. And as I was traveling down south, whilst the locals were again warning me, don't go down south. I was like, I can't not go down south. It's part of the record. It's part of the adventure. It's my starting point. But we were coming across vans that had bullet holes that were set on fire. We were coming across communities that were burnt out, uh, burnt down. From gangs? From the bandits. And the bandits are the these sort of group of thugs who come from the west, southwest of Madagascar to southeast of Madagascar. And they look to steal Zebu, take them back across to the other uh, side of the island and sell them. What's that? What's Zebu? Zebu is the cattle, the Malagasy cattle. And they have artillery. And they get into fights with the military and the military down south are very corrupt. And there is just one big party. They get drunk. The bandits don't get drunk. So they're very, very aware. And so they're able to take down the military and then they steal the artillery from the military. And they were down south and we were kind of warned by the sheriff of the village that they're trying to come over. But also the military are now coming because there's a bit of civil unrest happening in a nearby town. And we were like, fucking hell. You know, what do we want to face the bandits or do we want to face the military? You know, we don't want to face either, but we've got a we, we've got a choice here. So we tried going into the forest to hide from the, the military, but we learned that the bandits were in that forest 
also hiding from the military. So we exited and that's when we were met by one one drunken officer who who approached AK-47, struck round, and he growled at us weirdly. He did this like murmur, this like, you know, growling at us and he demanded for my passport. And like I gave him the passport and then he started saying that I'm not allowed in the country. It's expired and it wasn't expired. And we had like a piece of paper showing him that we got backing by the government as well. And he started saying that this is fake. And then he started getting serious with us. And he had this AK-47 strapped on his shoulder, you know, still looking at us. But the strap kept slipping because he was drunk. So he kept catching the gun by the trigger with the barrel of the gun pointed at me and my guide. And we were like trying to avoid the barrel, trying to look for this safety catch, thinking what the fuck is going on? What do we do? Do we, do we, cause he's so drunk, do we act fast and just tackle him to the ground? There's like three of us, there's one of him. When he's, you know, when he drops the gun, do we go for it? Or like, we just, we didn't know what to do. And the look on my guide's face, you know, when the local guides look scared, you should definitely be scared. I was like, shit. And then um, a crowd started to generate because there was a nearby community. This went on for about 15, 20 minutes. And the French don't have a great history in Madagascar. They ruled Madagascar over 60 years ago. We're very brutal, very torturous in the jungles as well. And a lot of the locals thought I was French, but there was one particular local that just didn't like me because he thought I was French. And so he was trying to break through the crowd to fight me. He had his fists. He was coming through to fight me. So I've got this military officer dropping his gun with the barrel pointing at us. I've got another guy trying to fight. But luckily, you know, the, the, the rest of the locals were on my side. I think they felt pretty bad for me. And they said afterwards that that officer was an arse at uh, their community. They were like throwing a party and he was like really shouting about his authority, you know, doof, doof, shooting his gun in the air and, you know, quite a dick. Um, egotistical, so, yeah. Egotistical, and then two sober officers came, and you know they they said, "Give me, give me, or give us coffee money, and we'll we'll let you go." It's not actually coffee money, but they want some money. It's not much, and I did. I gave them some money. They gave me the passport, and uh, you know, so that was that was a bit of a shock. I was a bit bit unnerved sleeping that night, you know, because the sun was setting. I knew that I'm going to sleep at that that community. They know where I am. They could always come back. So it was a pretty sleepless night that night, as you can imagine. Oh yeah, I can imagine. Guys, I wanted to hop on here to once again thank the sponsors of this week's podcast, iSecure Vehicles. When we were searching around for sponsors for the channel, we honestly wanted to get a brand, a company that would give massive amount of value to our audience. And that is definitely iSecure Vehicles. They have a wide range of products which are designed to keep your vehicle, your asset safe and secure. Some of those products are dash cameras, undetected immobilizers, and car tracking systems. Head over to iSecure to look at their products and make sure you say that the Stephen Sully Study podcast sent you there. Changing the conversation just slightly, yeah. I mean, some of the mental torment that you must have gone through, mm. like, you know, the, the strain in your mind we've mentioned so many different aspects, but I've heard stories where you've traveled two, three, four days, yeah. realize you've come across a block or you've gone the wrong direction and you've had to turn around on yourself and go back three or four days knowing <laughs> that you're not advancing, you're just, you've, you've just done something wrong and you've hit a block. What is that like knowing that you've gone in the wrong direction for three or four days 
And now you're thinking, oh fuck, I need to turn this around. Yeah, that is some internal yoga shit that you got. You got to deep breathe and like, oh god. Honestly, sometimes I used to get annoyed if I missed my turning, and I'd have to do a U-turn. It's going to cost me five minutes. When that shit happens now, it's like it's fine. It's five minutes. It's not four days through the jungle, machete in hand, hunting and gathering. So I think those expeditions have really allowed me to come back to civilization and really put shit into perspective, you know. But when that happened, actually in the jungle, yeah, it was infuriating because it took a long time for us to actually give in and admit that we're wrong and we need to now turn around and walk three, four days back on ourselves, you know, to this small community, tail between our legs, so oh, we couldn't make it to the summit of that mountain. We need to try and find a different route, you know? But we we did. It got to a point where we were just like, this is silly. It's too impenetrable. So when I say too impenetrable, the bamboo shards were, I don't know what, four, five, six inches in diameter. So they would take about three, four, five hacks of the machete the machete we were just sharpening on granite rocks when, when we could find and we would continue to hack through the bamboo. But if you think that that's one bamboo shard that's sticking up and now you've got thousands in front of you, it gets to a point where you're not even covering one kilometer really in 16 hours of, of walking. And we estimated that if we keep this route going, if we try to actually make it to the summit this direction, even though it's only four miles and we can see the peak, it's going to take us a week and a half, maybe two weeks to get there, which was insanity. So we were just like, we just have to face it. And and, it, and it's like, I've done it when I'm on holiday with the missus. Like, right. I thought like when I get to a restaurant or a bar or a hotel or something, and I don't, I'm not familiar with the area, but in my mind, I kind of know where I'm going. Okay. And then I suddenly, she realizes that we've taken a wrong turn, but me being stubborn and like, no, 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 we're the right <laughs> way. And you end up having a fight and an argument. And anyway, long story short, you've gone the wrong way, but that's only, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's probably an hour that you've messed up or something like that. Yeah. There must be the alpha male kind of bit in you, like, no, no, this must be the right way. And it's like being a bit stubborn. And it's actually knowing where to turn that off and go, actually, we've, we've gone the wrong way. I've cut down all this bamboo. It's actually been a bit of a waste of time. I now need to turn around. That must be a really, really hard kind of balance to, to get used to. Yeah, it is. And I think, I think we probably could have done it and turned around two days before we actually did. Wow. So we, we, you know, we continued another 50% unnecessarily in the hope that the jungle would ease up. And who knows, you know, maybe, maybe 400 meters from that point, the jungle would have eased up. But how long do you go for? I don't know. Two weeks until you make it to the summit. You know what I mean? So it's one of those where we were just like, right. And then we had to really, so at this point for the three weeks in the jungle, I had a photographer and her porter join me. And so at that point, I had to really manage their mindset as well. So I couldn't almost show them that I was annoyed because they were already really annoyed or they were upset or they lost motivation or they were hungry or they were thirsty. And I had to be that positive reinforcement like, wow, what an adventure this is. You know, well, if I can eat this later, we'll hunt that, you know, we'll hack through um, the, the, the bamboo magazine that's fresh water, let's fill up our bottles, you know, always looking at lots of little goals along the way to kind of distract them from the harsh reality of this is fucking shit, you know, and Suzanne, you've got a leech on your face. Let me pull it off, you know, leeches everywhere, spiders. And so I almost had to shut off my own emotion just so that I could be the leader there in that scenario. Cause I knew that without any 
positive individual there, we're just going to each sort of push and force each other down a dark rabbit hole that no one wants to go down. Mm. And we'll just sit there and sulk or then maybe it will turn, you know, to arguments. Um, and so I was always trying to be positive. You know, oh, we can keep going. I reckon 50, 50 meters, and then we'll stop for like 10 minutes, 50 meters, and we'll stop again for another 10 minutes. And then it got to a point where it's like, yeah, it's looking tricky, isn't it? I think let's turn back. Deep and down, I'm thinking, holy fuck, this is a nightmare. But to them, I'm like, we'll go back, we'll go to that community, we'll get like these banana fritters, we'll feed up, we'll have a good rest, and then we'll try a different route. So that was interesting because I learned a lot about myself in Madagascar um, compared to Mongolia. Mongolia, I was solo, unsupported. There was no other decisions, no other mindset, no other moods, tantrums, strops. It was, it was just me and I'm quite a positive dude. And so I wasn't affected by, um, by anyone else's mindset. So I was able to be positive for a huge chunk of that Mongolia trip. Whereas in Madagascar, there were now, you know, people who wanted to rest longer, people who wanted to turn back, people who wanted to fly home, but, you know, so it was a bit, bit tougher to manage because you're not just dealing with your own moods and emotions. You're almost like four individual beating hearts. And what you're trying to effectively do is put all of these four individual emotions, needs, strops, worries, doubts, concerns into one power beating heart so that you're one solid team is a, is an aspect that I look, like to look at it as. And effectively we, we did, we turned back, we got settled, we found a better route and we were stronger because of it. And we weren't four individual peoples now, we just moved as one huge movement and became unstoppable and made it to that summit. I, I can, you know, being in business, uh, having a, having a team, I know how important it is to have morale, yeah, and have that positive mindset and work ethic, and everybody being accountable and and being being true, you know, just just working forward. But business and being in the raw elements of nature and fighting against whatever is is a completely different aspect. And uh, I just my hat my my hats off to you. Um, deaths. Have there has there been people in your crew? You know, has there been friend, family, whoever shared these journeys with you across all all of these adventures that you've done? Has anyone actually actually died, Ash? No, no. Anyone lost limbs or any anyone? <clears throat> no, and I I say that with with pride. You know, as proud as with these expeditions that I do, I think a lot of people see them as daredevilish and reckless. My early adventures, like certainly, like really reckless, stupid as well, you know, crossing borders illegally with no visa to do so. You know, so just stupid stuff that could end you in being in prison. Um, but now my latest expeditions, it's, it's hard work, it's ferocious training, it is attention to detail, meticulous planning, and understanding every single challenge or obstacle that could potentially go wrong and learning, studying, and researching how I can possibly overcome that obstacle and challenge enough to make it through. And if I'm like 90% sure, and there's a 10% chance of death, give myself longer. I need another two months to figure this shit out. You know, why did that previous guy, military soldier, why did he fail? Where did he go wrong? Why did he evacuate? What was it that he went through that I've now got to bring something new to the table in order to achieve? So it's a lot of that. And when I take into account people joining me, I'm always now thinking of 
them and their evacuation plan. Because I had a huge scare in Madagascar where I almost lost. I think the closest was my, my yeah, Madagascar journey, um, where my photographer almost lost her life on a river crossing. And this was, we were in the jungle. We had made it to the to the highest peak. We were now trying to get out of the jungle. It was the cyclone season, very tough to endure. Um, hunting gathering, as I say, we didn't come across many locals. They don't, they're not on the mountains during the cyclone season. We were crossing river after river and these were all, all flooded rivers. And then we always knew for about a week or two, we kept saying, we've got the Mavav to cross. And the Mavav is a big river and it has crocodiles. And in the cyclone season, it's pretty fucking lethal to try to get across. But we knew we had to cross it because that's the barrier between, you know, the wilderness and civilization that dictates we either hunt and gather and just base ourselves here until the cyclone season goes, which we can't. It's just it's just not practical enough. Or we cross and we reach safety. We actually can get food. You know, there's safety in numbers, there's safety with the community. And we needed to cross that Marvav River when we approached it. And I remember we arrived that night. It was dark. There was a local sat on that side of the river trying to get back home to his community. And even he was stuck, a local guy. And he was sat there for three to four hours before we rocked up. Um, and he suggested we can form a human chain. And people say, well, why didn't you just camp? And like the next day, it would have been better to cross. We could clearly see another big time storm coming. And if that storm was to hit, it wouldn't have been only uncrossable the next day, but potentially days or a week at least. And so we made the decision to cross that river. The locals suggested we go by uh, forming a human chain. And he said, you must, he, he knows the river so well, he knows his foot placements to reach each rock that will keep your head above the water. He says, you've got to follow my foot placements rock for rock. Wherever I step, you need to put your foot there. And we were you know, we got it. We understood it. And we formed this human chain. Me and Max had a bit of an argument. I said, we should face upstream so that we can fight the current. And he says, we should face downstream. And I'm still to this day, I'm pretty convinced we needed to, it's only if you fall, then you flip and you face downstream whilst the current takes you. But we needed to grip on the rocks with our toes. The current was strong, lean into the into the river, into the current whilst holding each other's hands. Anyway, we ended up facing downstream because he was so adamant. And as we were crossing, Suzanne missed her footing. She missed her placement and she slipped and her head went underwater and bearing in mind, we've got the big heavy rucksack strapped to us as well. Me and Max, she's kind of in the grip of mine and Max's hand. We wedge ourselves in between a rock. We grab, you know, grabbing her hands, stopping her. She at that point kept kicking up from the bottom of the riverbed, getting a breath, but each time screaming and then the river drag her back down. And this was strong. I could almost feel the grip sort of, you know, lo loosening. And it was at that point, Every scenario went through my mind in terms of if we let go of her now, not only would the weight of the rucksack drag her down, but the speed of the river will also bang her head against all of the rocks. If she survives that, it's crocodile infested. This is the Marvav River. And it was at that point I was like, holy shit. Probably more scarier than my time with malaria and my time where I almost died in the Gobi Desert because this was now someone else's life in my responsibility on my mission and she could have potentially died and something I tell you something was out there with us that night she managed to 
to, to get a good gripping. We pushed against the rock. She got her knee on a rock, managed to stand up, and we all crossed safely. She was in bits. She was in tears on the other side. I was high on adrenaline. You know, I was like, woo, you know, screaming and probably didn't help things. But I was just surprised that we all got across. And that was maybe a time where I was like, right, I need to, I don't want to be the guy that lost someone on his expedition, you know? That right. doesn't prove that you're you're tough and you do crazy adventures. That proves that your planning and preparation wasn't quite where it should have been. Mm. And so even with Mission Yangtze, there were 10 members of 16 different people that joined me. They were guides, they were film crew, uh, and they were friends. All evacuated, 10 of 16 before before week number eight, I think it was. Um, and they were safely evacuated. You know, it was fear of wildlife. It was altitude sickness that they were suffering with. Um, one of my photographers flew from the UK. He planned to join me for three weeks. I was super excited by that because it gets pretty lonely because I was on my own. Um, but after six hours on day number one, we faced a landslide. Um, I gave him two options because I always put it on them you know, two options, how to cross this expedition, uh, how to cross this landslide. I said, get rid of your ego, get rid of your pride. You know, there's no one out here watching, you know, you've got to do, you've got a family back at home. You've got to do what's right for you. Scout those options. I'm going to leave you two for 10, 15 minutes. You come back to me because I don't know what your capabilities are. And you let me know whether you're confident and capable of crossing one of those two routes. And he disappeared for a while, you know, 15 minutes. He came back and he was like, I'm, I'm going to call it. And I just said, you, you know, you've made the right decision. There's no, you know, you're a photographer. There's a whole, it's like if I tried to be a, a pro photographer in your industry on day number one, you know, it's not my industry. I'm going to, I'm going to fail. And it's not even failing, you know, whereas he was now in, in my industry. And that's when I also learned a lot about myself. I was pretty reckless in just letting people join. And I sometimes forget all of this experience and hard work and knowledge and, you know, I've tried different adversities, different challenges and overcome them and learned from each of those. And that when I do my third record and I'm like, yeah, come along, you'll be all right. And then I realize, yeah, no, it actually takes a lot more. It's like if I was to try to dive into, into your profession or it's someone else's profession, I can't expect to, I'm going to have all of the fails that come with climbing that ladder. Yeah. And that I just stopped then, stopped people from joining me and opened it up again six months later when it was safe to do so. Man, I, I just talking. I, I was like visualizing being on that that crossing with you, the yeah. human chain, and it yeah. gives me anxiety and and it <laughs> right. gives me an adrenaline at the same time. It's it's, it's bonkers. Um, you mentioned earlier about eating rotten, or you thought it could be rotten ill. Um, yeah. Food, you know, something that we take for granted. We're in the middle of Mayfair, right? I walk down the street and go to Piccadilly, go over to Soho, go to Whole Foods. I've got everything I want there. Um, and yeah. if I fancy Chinese, if I fancy Italian, it's there. And you take it for granted. Yeah. But when you're in the, the rawness, the wild, wild wildlife, you know, in nature, things like clean water and also food are just so essential, like so essential they must be. Um, yeah. The food element, like... I don't know if you're, you know, what type of food you typically eat. You know, there might be people that do this type of stuff who are vegan, for example. Right. And, you know, they don't obviously don't want to eat meat. And then there's people that have a polar, polar, polar opposite type of diet. Yeah. So 
Talk to me about the challenges and the, and the type of stuff that you were eating on some of these some of these trips because um, there must have been things that you wouldn't normally eat, but you've end up eating them because it was about survival. Yeah, definitely. I think when you're out there, you can't be on any diet whatsoever. You kind of eat what you're given, especially west of China on that Yangtze trek. They would give you pig's face. Um, they would give you yak as well. What's that? They, yak is like the goat in a way or the cattle. Okay. Um, and so... Oh, yeah, that's what you said earlier. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, you... And I loved that stuff, not the pig's face, didn't like the pig's face. But then, you know, it does get wild and you start trying certain delicacies. One was along the Yangtze Riverbank. There's these sort of pasha worm, sand worm. They're almost like these big fat centipedes and they burrow under rocks. It's on YouTube actually where I actually pull the head off Pull its guts and intestines out, and then you can you can eat it. It's um it's a delicacy, and they fry them and put them on the rice. So you do come across mad food like that as well. But I think the toughest was maybe south of Madagascar because they just were eating rice, rice and a few beans, not rice and beans, rice and maybe green leaves or a few beans on top, or maybe they'll give you chicken, but eighty percent of that chicken is bone. And the, the Malagasy eat bone. And so I would eat the chicken off my bone and I would give my bones to me, who was, that's the name of my guide. It got confusing, me and me. But I would give the bones to my guide and he would he would eat through the bones and swallow them and they they loved it. And I was just like, yeah, I can't, uh, you know, I, I can't eat, eat the bones. I was stabbing my, you know, my gums and it's just, it's solid. And so you do suffer, <laughs> a bit of malnutrition along some of these some of these trips. But the west of China, along the Yangtze River, started to get more interesting then because I was coming across more towns and cities. And in those cities, of course, plenty of restaurants. So I probably actually put on a little bit of weight towards the last two months of my Yangtze trip, you know, because I was out of the wild. It wasn't survival anymore. It was beating the tarmac, which was horrendous and boring because when you're on a road and there's people, there's food, there's water. It's not a challenge. It's monotonous. You know, you've really sort of got to, you know, you've finished because you've overcome the hardest challenges, but now you're on a tarmac road and you're like, oh, this is horrendous. But uh, yeah, the food was a, uh, well, but I have, I've eaten tranchula, I've eaten squirrel with the Burmese hill tribe that time that I crossed from Thailand into Myanmar. Um, maggot, bamboo worm, cockroach, snake, scorpion which was a chinese market that i ate the scorpion and snake uh, so i've yeah i've eaten a little bit of everything it's been pretty pretty horrendous eating a tarantula what is like eating a hairy tarantula eating a hairy tarantula what do they taste the like the size of my hand the texture of the bum you know it's big fat bum yeah like the abdomen yeah the the texture is kind of the same not the same taste but the same texture as tuna <laughs> you know so if you can, it wasn't all that bad. The legs were just kind of like crispy burnt French fries. Um, but the but the bum was, <laughs> it was the same texture as chewing a man. Dead like, you know, meaty in a way. And um, seeing tarantulas and snakes, I mean, these are probably the, 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 the fears that a lot of most people would have in the Western world because we don't see them a lot. But yeah. if you're going through a jungle and you see like a tarantula in its web, What's that like? I mean, they must, you must have seen some massive spiders. Yeah, I've seen some massive spiders. And um, any of them drop on you? 
One of them dropped on me, not a massive one, but a smaller one dropped on me as I was hacking through the jungle in Madagascar. It fell down my top. Oh. <laughs> right, everyone's worst nightmare. It fell down my top and it bit me, bit me twice on exit. Um, Did that, it hurt? It didn't hurt, but I think that's because I was being poked by the bamboo shards. I was bleeding everywhere anyway. And the leeches, uh, each night I would get into my tent, I would pull about six, seven leeches off so that I would be bleeding. Sometimes the face as well. I've got a photo of Suzanne who had a leech actually on her face. We pulled it off and it was just dripping because it thins the blood, right? It was just pouring more blood down there. Um, and so I was in a lot of pain as it was that the spiders didn't add it didn't add to that, but they did begin to get infected. And I've got a photo. I'll have to show you the photo. It's kind of like blistered up. And any sort of aloe vera plant that I came across in the wild, I'd always pull it off and squeeze it in to try to disinfect it. Mm. Did I hear right that a tribe person offered his wife to you? Yes, you did. Yes. What was that like? That was That was hilarious looking back, thinking about it at the time. It was... I was confused. It was the Altai Mountains that I was in. I went a couple of days at this point. I hadn't seen anyone. And then I clocked a concrete hut in the distance. And usually it's the, um, in the Altai Mountains in the West of Mongolia, there's many Kazakh families. And this was a Kazakh family. So I rocked up, you know, he, he gave me some Kazakh chai, which was like a nice sweet tea. Uh, 45 minutes, it was warm, you know, cause it was minus 15 outside. So I was now in the hut drinking some tea. And I think 45 minutes went by um, and we couldn't communicate. It was all sort of hand gestures, smiles and jawing in the sand and him trying my tra trailer, feeling the weight of it. And like, whoa. And I remember thinking, right, 45 minutes, it's been a while. I've, I've got to crack on. And as I told the guy at the hut that I'm going to leave, I just saw him like looking at me weird. Like he was thinking something. And I was just like looking at him like that, you know, like what's he thinking? And then he looked over to his, his wife, who was just sat on the bed, looked back at me to his wife, back to me. And right there and then in hand gestures, he pointed at me and his wife, pointed at the bed and linked his arms, linked his hand, his fingers like that. Gate offered me his wife there and then. And I was just like, that was awkward at that time because I was looking at his wife. I was looking at him. He was looking at me, he was looking at his wife. We were exchanging looks and I just like put on this fake laugh and he didn't laugh straight away. A couple of seconds later, he laughed and I uh, made a swift exit and she continued breastfeeding her child. <laughs> <laughs> but very hospitable, right? But but because you obviously don't fully know the culture, you could have like obviously you know you go like if someone spoke English, just like I'm not really into that, mate. But thank you, I'm going to go. Yeah. But in different cultures, they could take offence to it. Yeah. And then they could be violent. Yeah. Because they're like you're 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 taking the piss. Yeah, like, they could. Yeah. You need to go and do the business. Yeah, and that's what was awkward about it. It's like. <laughs> What do I say? How do I know he's not carrying something behind him that he could be like, you've offended me. But that's why I just put on, you know, that humble laugh. And uh, But then equally, it could be a setup, like go and do it. And then he sees that as a reason to kill you. Yeah. Oh, it's just it's just a mind, mind, mind fuck. Well, I actually escaped and I was, I was thinking, it took me a while. And then I was like, holy fuck, in this day and age, was that a wife offering that just took place then? Or... Are they now laughing in their hut, taking the piss? Oh, he thought we were serious, you know? But then when I reached, um, once I finished the trip and I was back with my logistics manager, I told him that story and he was like, no, yeah, it is. It's a thing in some very rural areas in the depths of the Altai Mountains. And I was like, wow, so you think that that was potentially legit? And he was like, yeah, 
he knows he, he's like he's it's not the first i've heard that story ash and i'm like oh my god that's crazy yeah like back in the day ancient explorers like yes but i don't know i was just like what <laughs> jeez um did you have a best friend that was a chicken for two and a half weeks yes yeah a warrior <laughs> champion of a chicken who is still probably on top of that mountain we should rename that mountain King Gertrude after after him. But effectively, you know, in order to summit the highest mountain on Madagascar called Maramakocho, it's tradition. It's, it's an important culture that you must carry yourself a white chicken to the summit of that of that peak. The Malagasy are extremely superstitious and they believe in witches and they believe in bad spirits. And so by taking a white chicken, they say that witches and bad spirits are scared of white chickens, right? And so I am all about respecting the local culture and tradition. And I took myself a white chicken and I called him Gertrude. Um, and so Gertrude, I had to look after, I had to feed, I had to give him water. Um, if he got tired, I would, I would perch him at the top of my rucksack in the little zip compartment. If it was raining, he'd tuck himself in. If it was sunny, he'd be out chirping away which got very fucking annoying, to be honest, the chirping, hacking through the jungle, you're hungry. Chicken's my favorite food, you know? <laughs> you're just like, well, you know, but you're not allowed to eat him. But then eventually got to a point where I wouldn't have eaten him anyway because he became fully domesticated. He was like a little pet dog. He would sleep on top of my tent. He would shit either side of it, which was annoying, but he would sleep on top, didn't have to tie him up. He followed us everywhere. I remember one time we rocked up to a small community. We put him in a little chicken pen and he found his way out of that chicken pen, found the hut that me, Max, Suzanne and Joe uh, and Lever were sleeping in. And he put, I just heard like a at the windowsill. I was like, the fuck? Pulled back these little blinds and it was Gertrude. He found us. He ditched <laughs> his chicken friends, walked over to the center of the little community and he was like perched on the, on the windowsill, which was bizarre. We continued and two and a half weeks later, we made it to the peak of that highest mountain. And that's where you set him free. It's a sacrifice effectively. It was the cyclone season. He wouldn't have survived, not even a day, but I couldn't take him back down, unfortunately. Otherwise, obviously I would have. But the two Malagasy locals that were with me said that if you bring him back down, um, you effectively bring the spirits and bad witches with you. And if you take him into a community, the locals will be so pissed because they believe that you've now brought bad spirits to their village. They'll, they'll... Was it a sad sad day when you had to leave him? Because you must have been attached to him at this point. Yeah, I was a little bit attached, not to a silly degree, but I was a bit like, yeah, you know, that's a shame. It's a bit harsh leaving him up here in the in the rain. This mountain, you know, he was now tucked under a rock. He doesn't like the rain. I was just like trying to get him to follow. It's like, well, he can follow it. us back down, even though I'm not bringing, he can follow, but it was raining and he just stayed tucked up. In and he would have been eaten. He, um, maybe not even eating because it's at the summit, but with those winds and that rain, uh, no real protection, I think he would have, uh, yeah, perished. Was there any incidences that I've heard from other conversations you've had about potentially people seeing spirits or witches or ghosts? Yeah, yeah, man. And this is a, this is a weird story. I don't know what to think of it. Um, for me, it's still a big, big question mark. But a lot of my expeditions, I'm I'm able to answer most weird stuff that happens with good logical answers, with a with a good logical decision of this is what it is or that's what it is. But after all of my travels, and I knew before I set off for these travels at age 19, I knew that there would be f shit that I face that will simply be unexplainable. 
And there's three stories really that stand out. And the story that uh, you're mentioning is one with a witch, one that involves a witch or bad spirit, however you want to choose to describe it. The Malagasy call it a witch. And this one night we were hiking through the interior of the island. We were deep in the in the depths of the jungle up north, uh, sort of following the central ridge uh, mountain range of Madagascar. And we had a map and we also had GPS. And we had gone days without seeing any other community. And the map and GPS suggested that we won't come across another community for at least another few days. But randomly, one evening, we did come across a community that wasn't on the GPS and wasn't on the map. They weren't supposed to be there. So we were like, fucking hell, okay, this is great. And I remember that night, it was super eerie because it was misty in the jungle. I remember it being full moon, but it wasn't creepy. It was just like, wow, this is beautiful, clear sky. And we rocked up and they invited us in. They were very hospitable, super welcoming. They gave us a, a little wooden shack, like a little wooden hut where we laid down our sleeping mats next to each other. There was the four of us. And then there was Gertrude next to Max. We still had Gertrude at this point. And my take, my story is I woke up randomly in the middle of the night from sleeping and saw Max walking into the hut with a fucking machete in hand out of breath, I could see the steam from his breath. And I said, you know, you're right. And he was like, yeah, yeah, you're all good. Go back to sleep. And then that was it. And then I went back to sleep. That's my take. His take, he woke up in the middle of the night to movements and noises. And he looked to his right and there was Suzanne, me and Lever sleeping on our sleeper mats to his right. And we were all convulsing in our sleeps. We were all shaking apparently and he was calling us and we we didn't wake. He looked towards the door and this door was made up of wooden planks so it had gaps with the moon shining a silhouette through the door and he saw a figure on the other side of that door and he shouted like, oi, you know, in Malagasy, whatever that is, hey. And this thing wouldn't budge. So he got up, grabbed his machete and walked towards the door and this thing, what he claims to be a witch, did a little giggle, ran off, and he burst out of that that shack, ran after the witch. And he's a fit guy. He's strong, you know, good endurance, fast as well. And this thing outran him that as soon as they got to the jungle, the entrance of the jungle, she vanished. She just gone. No noises, no movements, just gone. Completely outran him. And then he came back and he says, you, were, you had all stopped convulsing. And you, Ash, woke up and asked if I was okay. And I said, go back to sleep. And I remember having a bad dream that night. I don't remember the dream, but Lever and Suzanne said they also had pretty disturbing dreams. We didn't sleep easy that night. And I was like, what the fuck? well, why weren't you convulsing? You know, why didn't she have you? I was kind of taking the piss laughing at this point. And he said, because Gertrude was right next to him. Gertrude was sleeping. I was just like, oh, fuck. Anyway. We're pretty freed. I'm kind of like rubbish, but like I do remember him coming coming back in out of breath. Um, and we'd all had, you know, pretty dodgy sleeps, but we then were having breakfast with the community. They gathered around the fire outside that community and they all started sharing their witch stories. They all had their unique experience of something that keeps coming into their community from the jungle and disturbing them. And they were saying it like it is legitimate, genuine thing. Like there's a local wolf that comes by and disrupts the the herd that you have to keep chasing off. 
And I was like, what the fuck? Where do they get the story of the witch? Where do they get the story that you have to carry a white chicken? And why are there so many people who aren't laughing at this like I am, like Suzanne is. Suzanne came, comes from Brazil. She's half Belgium, half Brazilian. And me and her were sort of giggling at first, but then she became freaked out. She never again slept a single night on her own. She stayed in the same tent as Max and Lever. Um, and I had my own tent, but she was so freaked out. She, um, that was it. And, you know, I, I don't have an explanation for it. Uh, I don't believe in that stuff. Maybe I believe that there's maybe something else going on. Which, what? But who am I to sit there and judge them for what they've experienced? So I'm kind of like, look, so that's a big question mark. I don't know what to, uh, you know, what do you, th what do you think to that? Oh, What's going through mate. your mind now that you've heard I'm, that? Look, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a proper West, Westerner and I don't know if lots of Westerners, they might have little things like don't walk on free drains and all the, the, regu uh -huh. the regular superstitious yeah. stuff. But yeah. I think most Westerners... Uh, <laughs> Don't go that, that deep into it. I was only having a conversation the other night, actually, with my wife and her, um, my mother-in-law about like ghosts and stuff like that and right. whether I believe in them or not. And I feel like I'm just too much of a logical person to say no. But yeah. when you go into other cultures and stuff, yeah, you know, I actually stayed with a tribe in, in uh, Thailand. Oh, nice. Okay. I smoked opium with them as well because it's Whoa. part of their tradition and stuff. And they yeah. were talking to me about spirits. And you do become... A product of the environment even though i was only there for a couple of nights yeah and you start to come around to their way of thinking and mm. are all of these people talking rubbish are there all of these people nuts or is there some truth behind it and yeah. I, I guess you'll never know unless unless it's you're there one of those isn't it it's, yeah it's a crazy thing yeah i always say it's it's good to remain open-minded and not shut down anything you know definitely unless it gets too ridiculous but i think yeah just and with them i didn't show that i was taking the piss or or didn't believe, I like listened intently and I listened to their view. You know, I know my view, but my view is now being sort of like question marks surrounding it that I'm like, whatever. And it, it is also the, like, when people say, do you believe in God? I, my initial reaction is no. I'm yeah, sort same. of, I'm quite, kind of black and white like that. Yeah. But I do hesitate slightly because I always say to myself, but what what happens if there is? I don't mm. want to be completely one hundred percent no. Maybe ninety percent no. Yeah. So if there's a ten percent yes, then then they can look after me. Yeah. Same as ghosts, same as spirits and aliens. Like hopefully, I'm not so you know maybe one there's sided. Some, there's, yeah. there's an element of well, there could be, there could be. So maybe know? there's some comfort. Yeah. In agreeing to some extent, yeah. type of thing. Yeah. 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 One last real sort of question before yeah. we ran off this podcast, and I appreciate your time, actually. Yeah, no worries. Um, a bit like an SAS soldier, I guess, or yeah. someone that has achieved the highest of heights. They've, they've done some incredible things, and then you kind of come back to normality. You're here in London, or you go back to Wales, and, you know, face facing malaria traveling the hot hot the cold people almost dying you almost dying mm. eating some mad stuff and then you come back to this kind of environment <clears throat> there must be a bit of a paradox between like you feel like elite you feel like maybe a slight not ego but kind of like like if only these people knew what i've been, been through right but at the same time it's almost <clears throat> like <clears throat> kind of appreciating this sort of stuff as well. I mean, what, what, what's the, what, how do you feel about coming back to just normal life? 
Yeah, you know what? I I think I think when you are out on one of these expeditions, you you come back and you could come back with ego. There's definitely a degree of not ego, but understanding what you're capable of, which makes you feel better. And because you feel better, you're better around other people and you give more time because you understand yourself that little bit more. And you maybe want to help people on their journey or you maybe there's something you can learn from them. But at the same time, because it's adventure, you can't help but also come back humbled because you kind of come back and you think, yeah, that's fucking tough. You know, I, I nailed that. I crossed Madagascar, overcame that challenge. But then you look at the locals who do that shit every day, living out there, who live out in Mongolia and endure these zoods, which are like harsh winter storms that whips the temperatures down to minus 50 degrees Celsius. And they have to survive that when even their livestock can't. And the demands of getting up every day, you know, herding their yak, there's some element where you come back and you realize you aren't the baddest man in the planet. As much ego as there is like in UFC and boxing, people say, you know, the BMF, the baddest motherfucker belt. They are not the baddest mother. I've seen the baddest motherfuckers. I've seen them live it every day, day in, day out, waking up, minus 40 degrees Celsius, nothing but a jacket and a scarf. And they're out there herding, fighting off snow leopards or the wolves or bears from attacking their 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 herd or their yak, you know, and to do that day in day out, or you know, I've seen locals living in self-built wooden huts in the sand dunes of South Madagascar, where the guy will wake up three a.m. every single morning, no days off. Will go out on the boat, will catch fish, will then come back, leave half of the fish with his wife and four kids to prepare. No money, they don't have cash. He'll walk like ten miles to nearest community and trade the other half of those fish for rice and then walk back the 10 miles, rice and fish that day. The next day, same thing, same thing every single day. Their teeth are falling out, yet they have smiles. They're living under hardcore environments, drinking slightly filtered salt water from a well on the beach. And so there's definitely the element which humbles you and you come back with more appreciation, more respect, um, and so with the press and with the media and with the limelight that I do receive, that's great because I'm able to really sort of, this is my career, this is my passion. You know, I'm able to monetize on that, but I can never really let it get to my head because there's all of these memories and experiences of people out there that I've come across who, you know, maybe I feel in admiration of, or maybe I feel sorry for, or maybe... You know, there's there's part of me that wants to one day go back to that community and give back. And, you know, I think there's always that also on my mind. So that's why I, I like to I like to think of myself as, you know, humble. Um, and it's funny because at the same time, you're told then by certain agencies that you're being too humble and you're showing too much humility. That doesn't sell. You want to be braggadocious. You want to be shouting. You want to be creating clicks and views and it's it's fucking it's it's a difficult it's a difficult way to um maneuver it's 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 tough to do both you know yeah and to round off my conclusion with this this conversation like you've mentioned this in other podcasts as well you mm. know you're from a humble place in in Wales yeah not necessarily from a rich 
uber no. rich family who've got loads of loads of contacts you're not the biggest guy in the world you would assume that someone's going out into the terrain you know is going to be like an action man type person like a dwayne johnson who's going to battle through the elements yeah you know you're a lean fit guy but you're not the biggest person in the world yeah you haven't quite come from a military background and and you've actually you haven't got a lot of money so there at the time so you couldn't buy all the best equipment but you went out there and you made it happen and i think including me at times including all the best people sometimes we make excuses but actually the excuses are, are our own yeah it, it doesn't matter what the scenario is if you really want to do something you'll find a way to do it and that's what i've taken from you but also the life lessons like coming back into normal life we're so lucky that we've got these things yeah if i wanted right now to go out there buy clothes or go and have a guinness or go and have a certain cuisine, I, I can do it. And sometimes the things that we perceive are problems are not real problems. They're just little annoying little things. Inconveniences, aren't they? Yeah, nothing more. Yeah. Here's my last question. I came up with my own catchphrase when I first started my, my, my one of my, a company I had when I was younger, 24 years of age, and it was yeah. a sales company. And the catchphrase or the mantra goes like this, and it was designed to keep all the salespeople in check and focused. Yeah. This is the mantra. Be happy, never content. Now, I've got my own interpretation of that, Ash. But okay. if I were to ask Ashley Dykes, what does be happy, never content mean to you? I think be happy would be being in the moment, being grateful and being appreciative of what you've got right now and who you've got around you right now. But not being content means don't settle for that. There's better things ahead if you keep on grinding, if you keep on looking to develop yourself and progress progress things is what I would say. So I like that mantra. Be happy. You're, you're in the zone. You're happy with where you are, but not content, but never content, meaning there's better days ahead. There's more things to be achieved. There's more growth and development to be had. Good stuff. Thank you very much for your time, mate. Appreciate that, buddy. Really, really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. To, really looking forward to this episode getting out there. And, yeah, um, yeah, I'm, I'm going to obviously be staying tuned uh, and yeah. following your, your, your journey because I've got, I've got no doubt that there's plenty of other good things in the appreciate pipeline. Appreciate that. We'll do a round two. We will do. Thank you very much, mate. And uh, be happy, never contempt.